This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. Today I visit with author Albert Bartlett to discuss a book he's written called Macaulay's Monster. This is a fascinating read. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you, Jay. It's my pleasure. I read from the back of your book just to give our listeners a brief outline of what this book is about. On a dreary moonlight night in 1943... Malcolm Clausen patrolled the English Channel in his de Havilland 4052 Mosquito. His routine World War II patrol mission was disturbed when he encountered a roaring silver airplane larger than he'd ever seen before. With no insignia to identify the craft getting dangerously close to London, Clausen shot down this gargantuan airship just off the English shore. There were but two men in the UK who officially knew about the aircraft and its purpose. Air Chief Marshal Sir Hugh Dowding and Winston Churchill. This already has my attention. Tell me about this book. There are some connections, at least alluded to, to Howard Hughes. This is amazing. Tell me about this story. Well, the uh, story is about the need for the airplane, which was uh, to replace uh, a transport of troops and cargo across the Atlantic because of the losses to the German subs, and there was definitely a need for such a craft. And uh, actually, the uh, uh, the War uh, Department had contacted uh, uh, Henry Kaiser, who was such a successful uh, shipbuilder, to uh, uh, join up with Howard Hughes, who was acknowledged uh, uh aircraft aficionado to build such a plane and uh, and they did to provide the funds for it they actually uh, they actually paid for it but uh, the country was definitely strapped for income and any sorts of financial funds at the time so they didn't want to make too much of a you know too much publicity about it so the contract was given to construct such an aircraft but then uh, after the start of all of this, that's where the uh, problem became, and, and uh, that's that's where the uh, complications started. Howard Hughes found himself enamored with other uh, other exaggerations, which he he took advantage of, and then uh, just didn't have time to finish that uh, that aircraft. And that's uh, and then the story sort of starts from there, Jay. The story's premise is based on fact, but is not necessarily a factual recounting of what took place. Yes, it's very accurate. There were several aircraft companies that uh, uh, put in their bid for that uh, construction. Uh, not only Howard Hughes, but some of the established uh, aircraft companies at the time. Uh, Boeing was not one of them, but uh, Martin and Douglas and uh, Consolidated. I can't name them all, Jay, but there were several great airplane companies who found out about this, and they all uh, they all tried to get the. Uh, War Council to uh, give them a shot at it. Was there ever any confirmation that this aircraft was built? No, there was not. So the story has a, a basis in reality and in history, but not necessarily a confirmation that it ever took place. No, I, I think I explained that to prologue, Jay, that since uh, <laughs> there's no proof that it did or that it didn't, uh, one could uh, uh, assume that it 
it did or it didn't. But uh, and uh, there was such a need for such an aircraft as uh, you know it was, was shown borne out in the book uh, that it that it be uh, constructed. So, uh, but was never constructed well because of the secrecy surrounding the project. Uh, I mean, there, there's no confirmation of it. Right now, describe the process of writing your book. How long did the research take to get to the point where you could put something in writing? Well, I think probably, uh, you know, it probably took a year and a half because uh, uh, there's quite a bit of research that goes into that thing in order to uh, uh, fit the pieces together. You know, when you read a book like that, you're flashing back and forth over 50 years and the events that happened uh, fairly currently all the way back to 1942. So it it took a little while to make it all plausible. It it all could have... it, it all could have come about chronologically. Uh, everything could have fit. And you have 274 pages. Your main characters, describe them and what was their ingredient in putting this book together. The main character in the book was uh, uh, probably a, uh, a young man by the name of Bruce Jacobson, whose uh, father was uh, a relative uh, of uh, Jeffrey de Havilland who was the original builder of the moth and then the uh, mosquito, which is featured in the book. And uh, and uh, the uh, part of the airplane that was uh, discovered was on the uh, de Havilland uh, property, which eventually became the Jacobson property. So uh, 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 Bruce Jacobson, who uh, was the son of uh, Matt Jacobson, was the central character. He... Uh, his father found the uh, the part, and since he was under no uh, uh, honor to keep it a secret, he wanted to divulge the uh, origin of this uh, propeller, which was found on the De Havilland property. And the story, the story uh, originates from there. That, uh, where did this thing come from? And uh, and this thing happened 50 years before that. So what is it? Where did it come from? And, uh, so that's the story, Jay. Would you call this an adventure uh, adventure mystery story, or would you consider it a uh, a factual research piece? How would you describe this? Oh, I would think it's a factual research piece. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, there's a lady I know who's the senior editor of the Air and Space magazine in Washington, and I conferred with her a while after the book was written. Turns out that the guy who was a sort of a hero in my book, who was a director of the Air and Space Museum, actually was, <laughs> not to my knowledge, so there must have been some reason that uh, that guy's name was selected. How amazing. Uh, so uh, maybe there was some fact to it, Jay, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and this book, who do you think it would appeal to and why? I uh, have several uh, books out and some responses on the book, and uh, it seems to me that uh, anyone who's... Uh, interested at all in the Second World War, and uh, aircraft, constructed one sort or another, uh, is uh, interested in the book. And naturally, up in this part of the country, uh, we're next to Boeing, so there's uh, a lot of interest there. But so far, uh, the responses I've had are <laughs> from people who, uh, strangely enough, women who have fathers who were in the Second World War, or young males who just like... Uh, uh, airplane surveillance or airplane mysteries. And that seems to be the, uh, you know, my audience so far, Jay. Well, I love the premise of the book. How would you introduce this to someone 
who uh, doesn't know its contents. I would suggest to them that if they like a mystery, uh, uh, this would probably work. The thing I've always had uh, with certain mysteries is that if they can't happen, it sort of takes away from the plausibility of it. Everything in this book is very is very plausible. It could work. It it could have happened. I mean, there's been a lot of things happened during the war that we're just finding out about right now. And so... Uh, because they were kept in secrecy, and because of the need for it, they were constructed attempted. So, wow. I think it would appeal to anybody who you know has a little time to uh, on their hands. Uh, I don't know. I just think it's a it's a good easy read, Jay. I love the premise again. It's it's a fascinating creative look at World War II. This sounds like a perfect candidate for a movie idea. As any of the scenes in here stand out in your mind, you think these would make a great teaser to a movie production. I think there's several uh, uh, portions in that book. I think they, maybe first of all, finding that propeller would would be uh, an interesting account. And uh, yeah, I just have to think through it. Naturally, uh, the the old uh, engineer who had become a drunk is a somewhat of a central character, and and how he uh, came about to uh, to be resurrected and uh, was instrumental in, in discovering the uh, story itself is an interesting part to it, I believe. But I think it hooks together pretty well, Jay. There's some fascinating ideas in here, and I can can envision this as an Indiana Jones World War II adventure. It, wow. it really has some merit, from my perspective at least. Tell me, how is this book different from others in the marketplace? I haven't seen anything uh, on the market which has approached this this subject. Naturally, it's, it's all about the war, and uh, it, it takes place uh, not in this country, country, as a matter of fact, and I believe that, I just think it's a little bit different uh, from the uh, location, but I, I guess I don't know quite how to answer that question, Jay. It's just a, it's a separate story. It certainly is. Is there any underlying theme that perhaps you would like the reader to take away from this adventure? Yeah, I'd like to, uh, first of, have, of all, have the reader uh, have an open mind to begin with, uh, that uh, gee whiz, uh, did this thing actually happen? And uh, because of the need for it, I'd like to I'd like to leave that with the reader that, uh, hey, this thing might have really taken place because of the reasons of secrecy. Uh, maybe uh, it did, and there was just no uh, divulging what happened. I, I guess that's, that's what I would like the reader to take away from it. Well, I like the mystery part. Again, the story is titled Macaulay's Monster. Our author is Albert Bartlett. Thank you, Al, for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. How do we get copies of this book? Uh, let me give you my editor. She's on the other line here. Copies of this book can be ordered through Amazon.com, through BarnesandNoble.com, or from Arthur House directly. Fabulous. That's okay, isn't it, Jay? She's ah, yes. more this than I am. Well, you, you both have good voices, so it works well. <laughs> Thank you. Any possibility you'll be writing something else in the future? Oh, yes. I have one in the... Uh, in the mill right now. It's uh, titled Yesterday's Wind, and it's a quite a bit larger book, and it's uh, uh, it's a, based on a true story. Uh, wow. Neighborhood of 500 pages. It's a very large book. Well, and I'm really looking forward to, to uh, getting that book out. Look forward to talk to you about that in the future. For, you, for Author House and Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. 
Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, This Life's Tempetuous Sea, Risks Survived and Lessons Learned While Growing Up and Growing Older. And the author is Douglas Tolan. And Douglas joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Douglas. Hello, Steve. How are you? Great to have you with us. Uh, this is... Partially uh, autobiographical, this book of yours, with a lot of other additional views of life, uh, even even some things that are more contemporary. But you talk about this book is a multi-layered creation that touches on a wide array of topics, many of them drawn from personal experiences. So not only multi-layered, but multi-themed. And as you say, it wasn't your original intention, except you just have a lot to say, don't you? <laughs> I, I do, and, and it sort of drew me in. I think it's a, uh, a curse of the new writer is that you don't know where to stop and uh, <laughs> or how to partition it so that maybe you can put it in the next book instead of trying to pile it all into one. <laughs> So you go on to say that you recognize there's several imminent dangers facing this nation and our planet, and you feel compelled to share these concerns. So you're doing that, obviously, uh, for a desire to just communicate, but also for your family, friends, neighbors, and, and anyone who would pick up this book and uh, learn from your experiences. That's correct. And, and, and as a larger picture, I'm very concerned for our country. And, and uh, by extension, uh, for the world, because we have such a leading role in uh, global politics and resource use and, and uh, interactions. If we are not a healthy country, how can we be a, 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 a good leader, a, a proper uh, example for the rest of the world? Right. Certainly. Uh, as you look back over a half century, you know, when you were a child, uh, over a half century ago, and of course, uh, being a child today, kids that are growing up today, what do you see? What do what changes do you see in, in the, the different uh, time periods? Uh, I see more and more sedentary behavior on the part of children today. Uh, they're preoccupied with uh, their iPads and and uh, video games and and electronic gizmos for one thing. I think they're also uh, communicating in a sort of a third-person fashion via their electronic devices instead of learning how to interact together, play together, 
uh, learn to cooperate together in real-time activities. And I don't know what the outcome of that might be other than uh, a, a very serious breakdown in a very important form of communication. That's one. And another is that I don't think the children eat well today, uh, by and large. There's they're so much uh, health food and uh, diet uh, craze out there now, and uh, Dr. Oz and many of other uh, advocates for a healthy lifestyle and diet, but it doesn't seem like it's connecting with enough people. And that's serious because uh, their health issues will come down to haunt us in, uh, within 20 or 30 years, uh, such as diabetes. Those yes, are a, couple a lot of children. Of a lot of children overweight and obese, it's uh, an epidemic, and it's, it's much different than when you and I grew up back in the, you know, in the late 40s, 50s, uh, much, much different. It's almost like there's too much available today, right? It's just like you gotta, you gotta try everything. Too much available and too much uh, doctoring of food. Uh, uh, McDonald's calls something that I, I think is very unhealthy, calls it a meal, uh, 20 ounces of soda pop and, and uh, fries cooked in oil and, and no skins attached and, and a hamburger with mayo oozing out and, and, and I don't know, it's white bread. If, if that's a meal, then our children are going to be deficient in several areas and overstocked in calories and I don't know... Uh, <laughs> I don't know how they can run on that. Uh, that would, uh, after a while, uh, make me fat and mm -hmm. kill me. Mm -hmm. Also, you're concerned about our culture today, as you put it, is awash in lies and deceptions. Uh, I could show you over 100 Michael Ramirez cartoons. Every one of them, uh, that is 100 of them that are, are anti-Obama. And never once has he ever said a positive thing about this man. And how unlikely is it that somebody who's been elected the president of the United States could be totally bad, totally wrong? To me, um, Ramirez represents the epitome of bad propaganda. And yet people buy into that as if it is gospel. And I, I, think, uh, I think history can bring up a couple of other examples in the last century where this kind of propaganda has led to grave consequences. I, I don't know what to say. I tried writing a letter to the local paper in Spokane. You know, uh, what about Ramirez? Can't we replace that space with some more meaningful stuff like, uh, like letters to the editor? I mean, we've seen all the Ramirez cartoons against Obama left and right. Why, why keep publishing them? Why not uh, just say, here's another one, go to our website? But they don't publish my letters. I'm just picking on a single example. There are a plethora right. of others. Well, you've got some real concerns about the environment. Uh, we hear a lot about that and uh, what might happen in the future, or maybe it's inevitable if we don't change the way we live. Uh, how do you see that? Well, Steve, I just flew over Greenland uh, last Tuesday, and I looked down at the, the uh, emptied out fjords and the uh, retreating ice cap. I don't know where the tipping point will be, but if uh, indeed the rest of that ice cap melts, we know the scenario there is going to put about a third of the world's population into serious uh, 
uh, flooding and inundation problems, including people who live in cities like New York and Boston and New Orleans. And we are contributing gases, materials, uh, particles, and gases to the atmosphere. We're changing its chemistry. I, I, I don't think it's really right or fair to future generations to run this experiment without any controls and or to uh, deny that we're doing anything bad, that it's all a natural process, whatever the climate's uh, direction takes. I think we have to be contributing because uh, it's, it's the physics of chemistry when you add greenhouse gases. There's, there's going to be a, a change, and we've been adding carbon dioxide, for example, by, uh, by billions of tons. Uh, it's sort of almost out of control by burning all the fossil fuel. And that, in turn, if that raises the atmosphere a couple degrees centigrade, as they think it may have already or will be soon, then we're going to contribute to other greenhouse gases. That warmed atmosphere will be able to hold more water vapor, which is in itself a greenhouse gas. And so we'll get a laddering up uh, of uh, maybe uh, a global warming scenario that we don't want. We, we won't be able to handle uh, bug infestations in the western forests, uh, forest fires uh, getting hotter and bigger. I can, you know, and I don't know about all these uh, one and two foot rainfalls that have been uh, popping up now and then. Hurricane Irene, Tropic Superstorm Sandy, the floods in Colorado in September. These are, maybe they're just uh, part of the natural scene, but I don't think so. I don't remember seeing such copious rainfalls when I was younger. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I may be too subjective here. I don't have enough scientific evidence to back any of this up, but I, I'm concerned about what I perceive to be very disturbing trends. Another trend that you see very disturbing is people who profess to be Christian, uh, which, of course, teaches love, tolerance, and compassion, and yet at the same time, as you put it, come to be so hurtful toward people of different cultures, races, and, and beliefs. I, well, look at the, there's an attitude towards Muslims, and, and maybe it's because Al-Qaeda and other uh, factions within, the, so uh, presumably within the Muslim communities, uh, so hate the United States that they take it upon themselves to, to do destruction against us. I, I don't want to hold the Muslim world accountable for the actions of a few fanatics. We have fanatics within the Christian ranks, you know, and, and yet there is a, a skewed attitude against Muslims. I'm very concerned about that. The ones that I know, including my, son's, my son-in-law's family, are loving, wonderful, devout people. They don't, they don't think that way. They're just like us in so many respects, and, and we should treat them like, like they are our loving brothers and sisters. And uh, if, if, any, if any Christian denomination uh, dares to put down another way of thinking or believing, then that's just not Christian. Uh, I see Jesus as a, as a collaborator, excuse me, as a joiner, as a person who would bring people together for the better good of all. That's how I, I see his legacy. Well, as we've already pointed out, partial, uh, 
your book is partially autobiographical, but at the same time, you've also included information extracted from popular and scientific publications. And you're not sure, uh, you know, you assume to be you to be true uh, based on your perceptions, but you invite the readers to, you know, join in join in the debate. Absolutely, I, <laughs> Steve, I've been proven wrong, and any number of times in my life, <laughs> and I'm, excuse me, and I'm glad for it because it's taught me every time that there are sometimes a better, different perspective on things, and that my. My take on things isn't necessarily going to be always complete or right, and I, I welcome people to to uh, discuss their thoughts with me and and uh, provide me with some food for thought as to why they think the way they do and how they came to where they are. Uh, it's the it's a spirit of, uh, of communication that I love, and I even have joined a local group called the Sandpoint Scholars Group, <laughs> who uh, gets together every week to discuss matters and conjecture them. And, and uh, it's a wonderful way to stay mentally stimulated and up on issues, current on topics. And we don't necessarily, well, oftentimes we don't agree at all on some things, but uh, that adds spice to it. But we do not put each other down. We do not... Uh, vilify one another. We don't make goats out of anybody, and I, I, uh, I, I don't think I would stay with the group if they did. Why did you include songs in your book? <clears throat> I don't, I'm not sure where that came from, Steve. As I thought back over my life, I realized that I, I hung on to songs as if they were almost spiritual guides they, they uh, were a way of communicating to me where other forms of communication weren't working very well. I don't know if I had maybe something on the Asperger spectrum or whatever, but I had a difficult time uh, processing things auditorily. And songs somehow bridged that and brought life and soul to my, uh, to my being, and I was able to remember uh, so much uh, around a given song or two, uh, something of the period, something about what I was doing. It was as though it was a time machine for me, and it brought me much comfort because it helped me to realize that, uh, hey, other people were going through some of these things, some of the travails that I went through, and, and if they could do it, I could do it. If I can do it, they can do it. If, uh, something like that, I think. We've been listening to Douglas Tolan. He's the author of his book, this life's tempestuous sea, risks survived and lessons learned while growing up and growing older. Douglas, tell us how to get your book. I, well, <laughs> I think we can get it through uh, Amazon.com. Uh, also, uh, I have a few copies here at the house, and, and uh, Author House Publishing uh, can certainly arrange for, uh, for the sale of the book. I have it on sale in a local bookstore in Sandpoint, Idaho, and hopefully soon in, in uh, Auntie's bookstore down in Spokane. And anybody can write or email me, and I'll find a way to get a copy to them.
Well, we appreciate you so much, Douglas, for being with us on Author Talk. Well, Steve, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children, ages 24 to 18, who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for Author Talk. This is J. Douglas Barker. The novel is titled Slapped, based on a true story. Our guest today is Jessica Tobler. Jessica, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on the show, Jay. Tell me about this book. This actually, from my understanding, is a collaboration between author Paul Svensson and you and others about a very important case dealing with the environment and the legal system. Yes, you're, that's ex- exactly right. And you are interviewing me. I'm a co-author, but the reason you're interviewing me um, and not Paul Swenson, whose name is on the book, is the author, is because Paul, unfortunately, died shortly after he completed writing this book. And I'm, my, I'm just I'm heartbroken that he is not alive to see the book published. I believe, and a lot of people believe that, this is one of his finest works. Paul had 54 years of professional writing experience as an investigative journalist, very well known in the state of Utah. He was an editor for Utah Holiday Magazine. He wrote for the, um, the major newspapers in Utah. He was a book critic, a movie critic, and he was also a poet, and he wrote poetry and following in the um, steps of his older sister, Mae Swenson, who is one of the most recognized and most important poets of the 20th century. And so reading a, a, this book is like eating a, a gourmet dinner of words and vocabulary that are they're really little treats. I, I mean, you read the book and you come across a word and you think, that is the coolest word I've ever seen. And that's because of his talent and his history. Yes. And he, yes, was, he was liberal in his viewpoint, but this book is a conservative view of the environment, isn't it? Yes. I guess it's, it's really interesting that you would ask me that because Paul being a liberal and I am considered, well, I am, I'm a right-wing conservative. And the coming together of, of partnership with Paul Swenson and me shows that people can work together for things that they believe in. And in fact, um, I am a gun rights activist. And in fact, I helped get concealed carry passed in the state of Utah, which happened to be one of the most important states to pass concealed carry because um, many states patterned their concealed carry laws after the state of Utah. And um, I got involved in the 
testify to save open space because I don't believe that guns cause crime. And so one of the, if I don't believe that guns cause crime, then I need to have solutions to crime. And I believe strongly that large areas of open space in urban areas are critical to people's sanity <laughs> and health. Um, when everybody's stressed, I bet you go, Jay, I would be willing to bet you go down to the Gulf of Mexico. Or I don't think there's really any mountains in Texas, Haven't but there are in Utah. <laughs> um, and, and that's where people go to nature. And so when a developer came to my town in South Jordan, Utah, and proposed a massive development on the banks of the Jordan River, um, I fiercely fought his plans to destroy the river bottoms, and it cost me and my family very dearly. And Paul was a reporter um, covering this story. It was a huge news story in the state of Utah for many years. And the people liked the story because they, they I had a reputation for being a conservative Republican gun rights activist. And to see a gun rights activist actively fighting for open space was a novelty to some. And it attracted a large coalition of environmentalists. And, and people started writing to me about how important the Jordan River bottoms was to them, and they thanked me for, for fighting to try to save it. And then the book came about because um, I was sued, and my friend Julie Bell were sued for $1.7 million for going to city council meetings. And so the book is, came about because Paul was a reporter covering this story, and he, he beca um, he's interested in, he was always interested in stories of strong Mormon women, which I happen to be <laughs> a strong Mormon woman and taking on the establishment in the state of Utah. And it's interesting because Paul used to tell me that I was a feminist, and I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just a mom with a mouth. Mm. Um, so that's uh, that's a little bit about Paul. And when did this story of this event start or begin in the Jordan River Valley? I was made aware um, through a flyer that my friend Julie Bell distributed through the neighborhood of a development to be planned on the Jordan River, and so that was in 1996. And we were sued for 1.7. We were threatened just weeks after we started a post this project because we became instant media darlings. And we had so many people coming out to public hearings to oppose his uh, project. They had to move the, the city council meetings to the middle school. And so they, we also exposed that one of the developers was a third district court judge. And we were getting all this media attention and people were coming out, and so they threatened to sue us just weeks after we started opposing their project, and we didn't think they would actually sue us, but they did for $1.7 million and told us that all we had to do for them to drop the lawsuit was to quit opposing their project and just keep our mouth shut and never talk about what they were doing to anybody. <laughs> that, that's an amazing story just in itself. Uh, the classic really? fight Thanks. of, well, the cla classic fight of good and evil and, and the big guy against the little guy and the little mm -hmm. guys fight for the right reasons. Um, thank you. Well, I, I think so. And yeah, and I think that, that people it, that who like it, David and Goliath or Davida and Goliath's story, <laughs> if you will, they will really like this story. Also, it's an underdog story. And it's um, in today's, political climate, every issue that's trending in the news right now is covered in this um, in the book Slap. That would be um, political activism and 
since I happen to be a gun rights activist, there's some chapters on gun rights in there. No, I wouldn't say chapters. There's, <clears throat> there's, it includes my involvement with gun rights and how they used that against me in court. There is a, a gentleman who was an environmentalist, and he happened, when the developers found out that he had bipolar disorder, they completely destroyed his reputation and, and, and literally made fun of a man who had a mental illness hmm. and used that to discredit him um, in front of city council members and the newspaper articles and even calling me and telling me that why, why was I working with Jack Fitch because he has mental illness and he's crazy. Um, and then there's a really fascinating chapter on mental illness and what Jack Fitch had to endure at the hands of evil developers who were who were willing to, to destroy anybody who got in their way, and it's called a brilliant madness. And it, people that live with mental illness um, will really like that chapter and understand just because you have a mental illness doesn't mean you need to be put in a straight jacket. Well, it's a fascinating story. You've got 410 pages, including photos of the Jordan River area and some of the, I guess uh, you would call them, environmental problems that obstacles in cleanup and other things that are are listed there who do you think this story would appeal to and why um who would this appeal to yes wow um this story there are so many audiences that this story will appeal to um first of all i right off the bat people might think this is a book for political activists well it's not a lady read this book who is not politically active at all. She's a, a kind, gentle, stay-at-home mom um, who likes to crochet. <laughs> and she's never been politically active or or gone out to a city council meeting or anything in her life. And she loved this book. And she said that it was the best um, novel based on a story that she's ever read. And she, she um, experienced all kinds of emotions she laughed at the mischievous capers of, of Julie Bell and Jessica Tobler, and she cried at, at the amount of anguish that this, these women had to suffer and the torment that they suffered simply because all they wanted to do was preserve open space. Mm. Um, it appeals to Mormons for the fact that they might want to read about people that they attend church with and they'll relate to the meetings that we attend to the philo the concepts and anybody who has an interest in the mormon religion since it has uh seemed to take a quite a high profile lately especially with Mitt romney running for president last year um the book of mormon musical of course glenn beck the some would say he's controversial talk show host i i like him <laughs> And Stephanie Myers, who wrote the Twilight series, there's a lot of sports heroes and very high-profile people that, that, are, that are Mormons, which the correct name for the Mormon Church is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It will appeal to people that have mental illness. I think that lawyers will really like this book. Now, you put, that, you put that in the same sentence as mental illness. Was there a reason you did that? Gee, <laughs> That is, uh, wow, that was meant to be, I guess, or something. Uh, what do they call that when you make a... Uh, That's a melaprop, but I'm not sure which one it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I, I believe, okay, so housewives and moms will love this. Um, Middle-aged women will, will like this. It discusses um, problems with depression, 
Um, Julie, Bill, and I both um, are diagnosed with depression and how we deal with it. Julie, Bill takes medication, and I was um, prescribed Prozac, but I don't, my personal belief is I don't believe in, in taking chemicals. Um, so I hire a personal trainer, and it's, it, it's a very funny chapter called Sweating It, and it's middle-aged women going to the gym surrounded by, you know, uh, bikini models, and, and my trainer is just completely oh, gorgeous. You've got my attention you know? already. I think I'm going to read that oh. chapter for sure. <laughs> yeah, you know, my husband loves that chapter. He laughs out loud. I mean, this book, the way Paul wrote it, it it's laugh-out-loud funny, and it takes talent to to take uh, you know, politics, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and turn it into a... It, it's a novel, and it, it's fascinating. Like um, like the lady that wrote it said, it makes you laugh, it makes you cry, makes you laugh out loud. It brings out feelings of patriotism and, and anger. And I guess, you know, I could even say people interested on, in the war on women, I feel like um, that men... I, I sound like a... A women's liver right now. Look at all of the things that men did to destroy women, you know. Um, so it would be, you know, gun rights activists, free speech activists, people who love nature. That's how this book started out. I'm so in love with nature. I Mankind can do anything, right? I mean, we can go to the moon. I can't. I'm, I would never, I couldn't even build, you know, to a Q-tip. <laughs> Um, but if you go these big, you go to New York City, you go to cities in Texas, Utah. I mean, everywhere in the world, Dubai. Just incredible monuments. That they're, you know, men are, and women are genius. What they can do and what they can build and computers and and inventions and the value of open space. One of one of the many values is that the one thing that that mankind has not been able to do, and that is to recreate nature not been able to command grass to spontaneous grow and butterflies and birds and wildlife and and trees um and and even you know like mankind is you know they recreate uh surfs you can go surfing on fake waves and everything but it still doesn't have the element of actually being at the ocean and hearing the seagulls and just the natural wind blows and everything and it's so crucial um, gosh, I don't know why I got emotional all of a sudden. <laughs> I just get so emotional about um, nature. It's it's so important. And I grew up in a small town in Idaho and and by the Snake River, and it's very healing. And uh, Julie Bell has a special needs daughter, and she takes her daughter out into a, a nature preserve, and her special needs daughter just ran out into it, unfettered, unafraid, whereas... She's usually timid and shy, and, and that was a very emotional moment for Julie Bell to see how her daughter reacted in, um, in a nature preserve in Ogden, Utah. What's the underlying message you want people to take away from this, this, uh, this book? Well, I would say think of what has value to you, and are you willing to fight for it? And do the things that have value to you, can you buy them at, at the mall? What is really important? And... As we see our rights crumble before our very eyes um, in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, um, I hope people will realize that you can't buy those at the mall. You can't buy rights at the mall. You have to fight for them. And everything that has value in this world, you can't buy it at the mall. You can't buy your health. You can't buy a happy marriage. You can't buy healthy children. 
these are all things that you have to work for. And so I would hope that the people are motivated to, to get involved in their communities and, and make, help to make this world um, a better place to live. Is there one scene in this book that would stand out and make a great movie scene? Wow. <laughs> it's kind of hard to, uh, to pick out. Um, there's a lot of really good scenes. Um, there's, I mean, a couple come, if, if we're going to, like, maybe think of movies that it would be similar to, there are a lot of scenes similar to the movie Erin Brockovich where she's the only wom- woman sitting around a table of high-powered um, lawyers. There's a lot of those kinds of scenes all the time throughout the book. There's a um, an ACLU attorney, very high-profile in the state of Utah, who becomes the mayor and actually ends up running for president in real life um, on the Justice Party. And he represents Julie Bill and um, Jessica Tobler as their attorney. And Julie, Jessica Tobler... They were having a discussion on gun rights, and Lefty Gunderson, the attorney, said, found an article in Playboy about how important the right it is to have the right to keep and bear arms, and what the founding fathers said about it. And so, Jessica Tobler um, went up into her daughter's playroom and got some naked Barbie dolls and made little uh, gun belts out of 22 shells and put on the naked Barbies and glued some the little Barbie shoes, little red high-heeled shoes, and, and, and mounted them on a, an army jeep and took it down to his office. There's a, uh, they had a, Jessica Tobler had a, a spook alley in her backyard. They called it Haunted Wetlands, and they had um, the people, and she invited local politicians from the area to help haunt the wetlands. I mean, what's scarier than a politician, you know? <laughs> and, and then, and so instead of, um, it was, she built a scene of uh, developers with developers' plans, bricklayers breaking the forest, chainsaws. Not the chainsaws weren't cutting off people's heads; they were cutting down trees, and and it was destroying wetlands. So lots, there's a lot of lot of different uh, things that might be appealing to a reader. Yeah, there's funny things, there's serious things, um, there's a, a lot of great movie material in this book. Tell us the end result. What happened finally when all was said and done? Well, you have to read the book. You know? Good <laughs> um, idea. Okay, what it's, you know, it's kind of, I guess you would call the ending of this story a, a pyrrhic victory, and, and that's something that that was difficult for the characters to come to grips with, is that it, it real, you know, life is really not like the movies. Um, in the movies, expect, you know, the Hollywood endings where, yeah, the way the way that I would have liked to see this end, I would have liked to go to trial, and I would have liked the attorneys to have to pay millions of dollars, and I take the millions of dollars, and I go um, and build a huge nature preserve on the river bottoms. <clears throat> I think that maybe a really important lesson to realize life is not like the movies. So um, here's how it ends, is that um, against all odds, the Jessica Tobler and Julie Bell, they they say, no, we're not going to keep our mouths shut. And there's a chapter called um, the Behind the Green Door, which discusses 18 very high-pressure settlements in which the women were given deals to, to settle and not accrue any more legal bills. They, um, I ended up accumulating $400,000 worth of legal bills. And to pay those legal bills, I mortgaged my house. It went without Christmas. Um, we went without material possessions and presents and things and and for Christmas we told people make out a check to our attorney 
because what I really wanted for Christmas was my free speech rights, and that's what I fought for for nine years. That's why I'm able to write this book, because they start, the developers started out suing us for $1.7 million, threatening to take our house, everything we owned, and keep our mouth shut. And it ended up pay, they ended up paying us $50,000 to settle. But the main thing all along was is there is no confidentiality agreement, and that is why I am talking to you, uh, doing an interview with you today is because I did not agree to keep my mouth shut about the evil that these developers bring and continue to bring on the state of Utah by suing people to get them to shut up. And not only did they sue us, but they have sued several cities in the state of Utah, wherever they go to develop and they threaten with lawsuits, and that's how they develop, and that's how they were, are able to get high-density um, projects through in sensitive areas. And so that's, you know, if I had a grand purpose for the book, you know, my, you know, to save the world is I'd like to call attention to these abusive slap suits. That's why the book is named Slapped. It stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. That's a spoiler, right? It is a spoiler. <laughs> That's why the book's name slapped. Um, but, but they're a huge problem in the United States, and, and, and many lives are being ruined by uh, corporations and developers that use these slap suits to silence their opponents. As a result, we did get um, a law passed in the state of Utah called the Citizen Participation in Government Act. It took three years to go up there and fight um, against... Um, power and money and pulled together um, one of the largest coalitions from the ACLU to the Eagle Forum to pro-gun to anti-gun all testified to say we we must do everything that we can to preserve free speech and then during the course of the nine-year lawsuit the Utah Supreme Court did uphold that the lawsuit was a slap suit and that it was an abusive suit and so that law now in the state of Utah, the Citizen Participation in Government Act, it's solid and it's good as gold. And I've had many people call and thank me for the work that I put in because they have been sued and they've been able to use this law to protect them from further damages. Well, Jessica, thank you for sharing your story. The title of the book, again, is Slapped, a novel based on a true story. Jessica Tobler has been our guest. Thank you, Jessica, for being here. How do we get copies of this book? Okay, it's currently on AuthorHouse.com, um, Amazon.com, Books a Million, Barnes & Noble, um, any other place where it's available on the Internet, and hope to have it on bookshelves throughout the world soon. Well, thank you for your inspiration and for sharing your story. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on, Jay. For Author Talk, this is Jay Douglas Barker.